0: return to the word is made possible by faithful supporters like you find out more at return to the welcome to another edition of return to the word radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio advancing the message of God's amazing grace the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher.
1: This morning we come to the end of the first chapter of Philippians. We come to a text that is often neglected, and yet we find in this text that it is a foundational text if we're going to live together for the purpose of God. Today we learn in the scripture how to be of one mind in Jesus Christ. A fourth grade class was excited when their teacher introduced a new game called the balloon stomp. A balloon is tied in this game to every kid's ankle. And the object of the game is pretty simple. It's try and run around and pop everyone else's balloon while protecting your own. The last person with the balloon intact wins the game. It's pretty easy. And the concept is simple. If I win, then you lose. Well, the nine-year-olds battled one another with a passion, and it was over in a matter of seconds, and only one balloon was still inflated, and the kid that won was the most disliked kid in the room. A second class came in later that day and was asked to play the same exact game, only this time this class was filled with kids who all had a mental handicap. The balloon stomp went in a completely different direction on that time. When the instructions were given, they didn't fully understand. It seemed the only thing that they understood was that the balloons were supposed to be popped. And so instead of fighting each other off, the kids got the idea that they were supposed to help one another pop their balloons So one little girl, she actually knelt down and held her own balloon carefully in place, just like the holder for a field goal kicker while a little boy came along and just smashed it flat. And then he knelt down and did the same thing and held his balloon in place for her to stomp. And one by one, all the kids helped one another in this great balloon stomp. And when the very last balloon was popped, everybody cheered. Why? Because everybody won. We have something to learn from them because this group of kids were united towards a single goal. This group was of one mind. The lack of pride, I would say, is the real difference. This is what we should want here for this church to live with a common purpose in Jesus Christ. Christians who have learned to promote Christ and stand together for the Savior. Join me in Philippians chapter one, where we start with verse 27. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Hard words to hear, isn't it? But it's the responsibility of every Christian Some of you are using the old King James this morning and it says, let your conversation. Now, this is one of those places where the meaning of the English word conversation has changed since the King James was translated. It's actually talking about how we live. And I think this one verse piles a heap of conviction on every one of us. If we put this into context, this is about living together within the body of Christ, how we treat one another, how we work together as the body of Christ to stand for Jesus Christ, living to glorify Christ in all that we do, living together in community. You see, the gospel of Christ, the work of Jesus Christ in our lives, it should have a profound impact on how we relate to one another in the body. And what is a very core part of a gospel message? A very core part of the gospel message is the revelation of the holiness of God. Isn't that a part of the gospel? A revelation of the holiness of God. The gospel is all about God making sinful people, you and I, acceptable before him in Jesus Christ. Live a life, Paul says, that appreciates what Jesus Christ has done for you. Stand firm in one spirit. No matter what happened to Paul, he's saying, the church was to stand for Jesus Christ. It didn't matter if he was released from prison, able to be with them again, and it didn't matter if he lost his life. The church was to stand. Notice he says, let your conduct. Interesting wording here in the Greek. It means to live as a citizen. Not just notice citizens of the Roman empire or for us, not just citizens of the United States. What does Philippians three 20 say? It says for our citizenship is in where heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, stand together for Christ, stand together in one spirit, Not a reference to the spirit of God back here in verse 27, a reference to being united in how we live for Jesus Christ with one mind working together for the truth of the gospel, contend for the faith. Now, Philippi was a Roman colony. The people living there knew what it meant to be a citizen. They were so, so proud of their citizenship in the Roman Empire. And even though this city was some 800 miles from Rome, Philippi was thoroughly Roman in all that they did. The people were puffed up. They were proud of their status as Roman citizens. And if you are reading this in the Greek, you would see the command here in the text of Paul to say this to the church, stop thinking about only being a citizen of Rome because this is not what the church of Jesus Christ is about. He's saying, shift your focus, shift it to being a citizen of heaven. He's telling the church, we're a colony, a colony of heaven. Stand together with one goal, You see, God never intended for Christians to try and go and live their life on their own. His plan is that his people come together to build each other up in the faith. And here's what happens when Christians fight, when Christians gossip, when Christians stir up trouble, when they complain, when they put each other down, they are not living worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what does it do? It hurts the work of Christ. To live worthy of the gospel means to stand together in the fight. Get in the battle and stand together for Jesus Christ. And building off of this, Paul says in verse 28 and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of what? Salvation and that from God. Paul says there's no reason, there's absolutely no reason to be terrified of the lost. Now, the word for terrified was used of horses that were spooked, living in fear. And something scared them, something set them off. So they turned into a stampede that was completely out of control. When we come together with one mind, there's no reason as believers in Christ, we should be afraid of anyone. Meaning this, we have no reason to fear. We have no reason to be afraid of this lost and dying world. There's no reason to be scared of the lost people out there today because our victory is certain in Jesus Christ. Our strength comes from God. Our redemption comes from God. It is all of God. Our courage comes from God and his eternal plan for us. So I'm telling you this morning, don't let the atheists intimidate you. Don't let the evolutionists push you around and don't ever, ever let anyone make you doubt the perfect holy word of God. If you've ever been a part of a church like this or this church for even a couple of months, for just a few months, you know more of the word of God than 99% of the unredeemed world out there today. But they're angry. They're angry. They're very angry. Not so much at you. They're angry at God. They don't want to be held accountable to their creator. And so what do they do? They attack God's people. They attack God's people with their words, with their hate. The world is at war with God. And the minute you become a believer in Christ, you change sides. You switched. There's a battle raging all around us today. It's written into the books we read, the shows that we watch on TV. But in Paul's day, it was a different battle. The pressure on the Christians in the Roman Empire, it was growing, it was building, it was getting pretty intense. And the storm clouds of opposition were gathering on the horizon. And so what is Paul doing in this text? He's preparing the church. He's saying, look out, it's coming, look out, there's a storm coming, there's dark days ahead. I actually have no doubt if you look at church history and you look at the timeline of when this book was written, that some of the Christians who first read this letter would have met their own death under the cruel torture of Nero that was just a year or two away. Christians would be crucified. They would be torn apart by dogs, set on fire. But as they faced their own death, they could remember these words, these same words that we're looking at from Paul. They could remember his example that they should stay faithful to the end. So many of the Christians died with hymns on their lips, dying with forgiveness in their heart and the light of heaven on their faces. You see, I think part of the reason this is here in the text is because when churches fight each other, when Christians start turning on each other in the church, when they fight in the church, it makes a very, very poor testimony for Jesus Christ. Let me say it like this. When we run around like little kids trying to stomp on each other's balloons, it shows the world that the church isn't much different than the lost. But when we learn in Jesus Christ to be of one mind, Paul says, we become a living testimony that the work of God, the work of Jesus Christ in our lives is absolutely 100% true. And so we're called to live without fear, being of one mind in Christ. When Christ lives his life through us, we shouldn't be afraid. Do you remember when Christ stood before Pilate and the Roman soldiers Do you remember what happened? They beat him. They mocked him. They put a crown of thorns on his head. And then they spat on him. And Pilate invited Christ to defend himself. But Isaiah predicted something so long ago. He said Christ was going to be oppressed and he would be afflicted. Yet what? He opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Meaning this, God, the son was quiet. The creator was calm. He was confident at peace before his enemies. And Paul is now telling us that when Christ lives his life through a man, the boldness of Christ, his confidence and strength is there. It is Christ living in us and through us. And when we don't run off scared of those who hate Christ, it is another beautiful testimony to the world of the final victory that is coming one day through Christ. It goes back to verse 21 of Philippians one, where Paul said this, he said, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is what gain. Watch what Paul says next, starting in verse 29. He says, for to you, it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict, which you saw in me. And now here is in me. We become one mind when we go through some hard times together, when we go through the pain together, struggle together for the cause of Jesus Christ. See, Paul is saying here in verse 29, every believer in Jesus Christ has received a gift from God. It is the privilege of suffering for Jesus Christ. It goes beyond just a life given to us in Christ. It is the gift of suffering that comes to us by the grace of God. You may not think of it this way when you suffer for Christ. You may not have this mindset right away, but it is a tool. I think we can all look back at our lives and see it. It is a tool that shapes us, molds us to make us more and more like Christ, more and more like God, the son. And so Paul tells them here in verse 30, he says, you're in the same battle that I've been in all along. He's saying Christians at Philippi, you saw what happened to me when I first came there preaching Christ. And now you hear that I'm locked up again. And it's a good thing because when we make a stand, when we take a stand for the Lord Jesus Christ, what does the Holy Spirit of God do in our lives? He comforts us. It gives us a reason to rejoice knowing that God is using this for His glory. God will reward it in His time. Now, this is not, Paul is not talking about God the Father in heaven chastening us for our sin, even though that does happen, doesn't it, in the life of a believer. But this is suffering for him. This is a gift. I love church history, if you can't tell. John Huss is another one of these names. You guys should just write down some of these names that I mentioned. Go home, buy some books, read about these guys. It will inspire you. John Huss, this guy was amazing. Look at the dates. He was one of the earliest reformers in the 1400s, way before so many of the others. And John was at Charles University in Prague when he was thrown into prison for teaching the doctrines of the Reformation. And just two weeks before he was killed for his faith in Christ, he wrote these words from his own prison cell. Look at what he wrote. He said, I am greatly consoled by that saying of Christ. Blessed are ye when men shall hate you. It bids us rejoice in these tribulations. It is easy to read it aloud and expound it. But what? Difficult to live out. And then look at his prayer that comes next. He says, "O most holy Christ, give me a fearless heart, a right faith, a firm hope, a perfect love that for thy sake, I may lay down my life with patience and joy. Amen. And then when John was chained to the stake with wood and straw piled up to his neck, he was given one last chance to recant and and save his own life. And here was his response. He says, God is my witness that the things charged against me, I never preached. But what did he say next? In the same truth of the gospel which I have written, taught, and preached, I'm ready to die today. Or maybe you've heard of This man, Joseph Tassan. Joseph was the pastor of the largest church in Romania when the communists were in power. He was singled out for persecution and on one occasion he was being threatened with death and torture. And here was his courageous response. He said, your supreme weapon is killing. My supreme weapon is dying. Here's how it works. I like that he explained it to people. He said, you know that my sermons on tape have spread all over the country. If you kill me, these sermons will be sprinkled with my blood. Everyone will know I died for my preaching. So sir, my sermons will speak 10 times louder than before. I will actually rejoice in this supreme victory if you kill me. That's faith, isn't it? That's faith. There comes a point in the life of every Christian when we realize that if we're going to stand for Jesus Christ, it's going to cost us something. And who are you going to identify with? Who are you going to identify with? an angry and lost dying world or Jesus Christ, the apostle Paul and all the wonderful saints of God that have gone down the road before of laying down their lives just so that Jesus Christ could be preached. Salvation in Christ didn't cost you a thing, but being a disciple of Christ will cost you that will. It is one who learns from Christ and takes up the life of Christ, this will cost you something. Because when it gets tough, it's so easy to back out of the battle. All we got to do is close our Bible, just skip church for a week or two. We can just back off. But Paul is telling us that suffering for faith brings us into fellowship with Christ and with each other like nothing else can. This sweet lady, if you've never read about her, you got to look this sweet lady up. I love this woman, Dr. Helen Rosevere. She just passed away a few years ago, back in 2016. She was a British medical doctor who worked for many, many years as a missionary in the Congo. But when that revolution came there in the 1960s, oh, she was beaten very often and she was tortured. It was brutal. And on one occasion, when she was about to be executed, she feared that God had forsaken her. But then she remembered something. 20 years before this, she had prayed and she had asked God for the privilege of being identified with him. And now she remembered that God was letting her live it out. And this overwhelmed her. And after she was rescued, she wrote about her experience with God. And she said this about God. She said, he didn't stop the sufferings. He didn't stop the wickedness. He didn't stop the cruelty, the humiliation, anything. It was all there. The pain was just as bad. The fear was just as bad, but it was altogether different. It was in Jesus for Jesus and with Jesus. See, Our pain and suffering, if we stand up for Jesus Christ, it is a gift of God's amazing grace, which allows us to share in the sufferings of Christ. It brings us closer to fellowship with him because our sufferings, it allows us to share something with Christ that no one else can share. The lost cannot, and it should bring us closer together right here in the body of Christ. Verse one of chapter two some famous words, but let's put them into context. Paul says, therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the spirit, if any affection and mercy fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord of one mind. Paul starts to tell us now how to be of one mind in the church. And let me just tell you this. It's not thinking less of yourself. Hear me carefully. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. And in case you think this isn't actually important, you need to understand that in some denominations today, the average church splits about every eight years. If you like what you have here, if you like this fellowship we have together in Christ, we need to heed the warnings. We need to pay attention. We need to pay attention ahead of time because we Christians are our own worst enemy. From what I can gather about this church from Pioneer Baptist, it had a split before, long before any of us were here. And we're not just here playing church on Sundays. The words we speak before church, after church, during the week, the actions we take, they all have eternal consequences. So learn this text and then live this truth so that the work of Christ and the wonderful fellowship in Christ that we have together can continue on until we take it and hand it off to the next generation of believers. Paul is saying to the church, let me tell you how you can bring me great joy. That's what he says there in the first part of verse two, doesn't he fulfill my joy? This is how you do it. He's saying, this is how you can bring me great joy. Paul was, if you remember, if you were with us last week, Paul was still under house arrest in Rome at this point, awaiting a trial before Caesar. Philippi was 800 miles away. The love of the Christians at Philippi, it ran deep for them. For Paul and his team, they had just sent money off to Paul so that he could pay the rent for the home that he was staying in so he wouldn't have to stay in a dungeon while he was waiting for his trial. Paul was so grateful to them, their gift brought him great joy. And you remember from last week, we saw that seeing his guards come to know Christ brought him joy because every six hours during the day, day after day, different Roman guards would change shifts. And he was strapped to the other end of a four foot chain with these Roman guards. Paul shared Christ. Some got saved. And this gave Paul joy. And Paul said he also had joy that men in Rome were becoming bold in their faith in Jesus Christ, sharing Christ. This brought joy. But there was something he wanted them to do in order to make his joy complete. It was to be of one mind. And this is what he says in verse two. You'll make my joy complete if you are like minded, living at peace in the church. If I hear, Paul says, that your thoughts are focused on ministry, on serving Christ, that you love each other and that you're working together in one accord, one purpose for Christ. Paul says, my joy will be complete if I hear that you're united in your faith. When Paul uses this phrase here, when he says like-minded, he doesn't mean we have to have the same opinions or that we have to agree on every single thing, but instead, what is he actually talking about? He's talking about having the same way of approaching things in the church, telling us that, hey, Christians, we should come at things with the same attitude, knowing that God has called us to be at peace with each other, that God has a larger purpose for us as a group of believers. God has a larger purpose for this church. And so we make the commitment to love each other, to live in peace without starting a fight. Paul asked them, would you do this for me? God's made it possible. God has given you the strength to do it. And when Paul writes, if in this text, what is he saying? There's an understanding in the Greek. The implication is if you have any consolation or any encouragement from Christ, and I know that you do. See, he's not, he's not wondering if it's true. It would be like my saying, hey, Angie, if it's my car, I get to pick the way we're going to drive to church today, if it's my car. And by the way, it is. Same idea here. We could replace if with since in verse one, since you have encouragement from Christ to move you in this direction, since your hearts are secure and comforted in his love, since it's now made possible for you to live in fellowship with God and with other Christians, since you know the presence of the Holy spirit in your life and are aware of his leadings and promptings in your life. And since God has given you Tender, compassionate hearts, which move you with kindness towards one another. Since God has made it possible, Christian, for you to do this, Paul says, make my joy complete by living in peace, in harmony with one another. Being like minded isn't about checking off a list of things. It is about having the same love, being in one spirit and one purpose. It means a togetherness of the soul. Oh, that is beautiful, isn't it? A togetherness of the soul. Listen to me very carefully. We do some things very, very well in this church. We really do. There's some things we do well in this church and some things. Well, let's just call it this. We're getting better at. We're getting better at. But the crowning glory of a church is when its members learn to live in love and peace with each other. That's the crowning glory of any church, because without love in the body of Christ, you have nothing. The biggest enemy we face as a church is a lack of love, because without love, we're going to fail. And this is what Christ told his disciples. He said, by this, all will know that you're my disciples. If what you have love for one another. But what makes this happen? What makes this love come about? It says, be humble. There is harmony in the church when there's humility in the people. There's harmony in the church when we place the good of others ahead of our own. And that's what Paul is about to go on to say in our last two verses, in verses 3 and 4. He says, act with humility toward one another. Paul said, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but who also for the interests of others. Harry Ironside, another one of my heroes of the faith, you guys should get some of his works. They're great stuff. The great Bible teacher from the 1900s, he used to talk about his own struggle with pride and humility. And at one point in time, he asked an older friend what he could do about his own pride and his own struggle with that. And his friend told him to make a sandwich board sign, one of those big, obnoxious sandwich board signs with the plan of salvation and a bunch of scripture verses on it and wear it as he walked through the business and shopping district in Chicago for an entire day. And his friend told him, if you do that, that will take care of all your pride. You'll be good to go. Well, Ironside did it. He did. He he decided he was going to take his friend up on the challenge, and he found it to be an absolutely humiliating experience. And when he went to take off the sign, he caught himself thinking, there's not another person in all of Chicago who would be willing to do what I just did. That's pride, right? That's the problem with pride. You see, humility is the difficult thing. It is a horrible thing to get a handle on. Just when you think you got it, boom, you've lost it. It's gone just like that. But it is a quality that is a part of the mature believer in Christ. Humility is important if we're going to have a church family that honors God. If we're going to work together in this church, I I would say that humility is like the oil in the engine. It is the oil that keeps the gears of the different human personalities from grinding on each other in the body of Christ. The like-minded attitude that we are to have is a humble attitude, living in love for one another. Love and humility go side by side, don't they? You can't have one without the other. They go together. So Paul says, be humble, Christian. There's harmony in the church when there's humility in the people. There's harmony in the church where we put the needs of other people in the church ahead of our own. And that's what Paul goes on to say in verse four selfish ambition. It's the attitude that insists things are done my way. It's based on pride. Galatians five, if you remember, it lists selfish ambition as a work of the flesh. And it is behind most of the church fights in, in our day and conceit or vain conceit here. It's doing things your way because you believe that you are more important than anyone else. Someone has said that vain conceit is like a big balloon. The larger it stretches and stretches and stretches on the outside, the bigger the emptiness on the inside. That's good, isn't it? The person with selfish ambition wants to be prominent at the center of attention. Vain conceit leads a person down the path of thinking that they are more deserving, more important, better than anyone else in the group. Prideful people never have a steady joy in their life. The person with selfish ambition makes other people yield to what they want. In vain conceit, it it assumes that the thoughts you have, your happiness and your desires in your life, matter more than anyone else's. Selfish ambition and conceit, they will cause A terrible, terrible disruption and dissension in any church. They'll create church fights. They'll create conflicts and lead to splits or it will lead to people leaving the church. Prideful people will then pack up their toys and go home, not over doctrine, but because they didn't get their way, because they didn't get what they wanted. They didn't get the spotlight on them or they didn't get just how they wanted things done. But humility, it's the opposite. It leads to harmony. It starts with a realistic understanding of our position in Jesus Christ. I like how the new King James puts it here. It says lowliness in mind. You see the grace of God, it changes our mindset. The lost man looks at a humble person as weak and afraid. No different back then. That's how the Greeks saw it. They took great pride in being better than the others. But in Christ, we see that the humble man has a strength that comes from God. The humble man has a strength that comes from our Savior. Humility says, I'm not going to compromise on the major doctrines of the faith. That's not what we're talking about. We're not compromising on the major doctrines of the faith. But when it comes to the small things, when it comes to how we do things, it doesn't have to be my way. Humility says things don't have to be how I would do it because I can see it's meeting the need of others. Humility says maybe the music isn't your style. Sorry, Ben, I'm not just picking on you this morning. Or maybe you don't like how we do this church project on the building. Or maybe you don't like how we do our church fellowships. Humility doesn't look at that. Humility looks for the good of the whole group. Humility thinks of others ahead of yourself. And that's what the rest of verse three tells us. It says in humility, in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. It's not about ability. Don't confuse the two. Paul's not saying that. This is not teaching you to consider everyone else as more capable, as more able, as as more functionally useful than you. This is saying consider others as more important than you, meaning consider their needs, their hurts, their pain, their growth and their faith. Put their needs ahead of your own. Paul is not teaching us to run around and say, you're better than me. But instead, he wants us to have the heart that says in the church, your needs come ahead of mine. Again, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is to think of yourself less. It's not putting ourselves down, but it's lifting up others. And this doesn't mean we have to be doormats for people. Paul is telling the church, your disagreements show that there's a problem in your fellowship. And it's not going to be solved by a list of rules. It's going to be solved when your hearts are right with Christ and with each other. Paul is saying, consider the other person. Humility says, I may be more talented than you, but you need to do this in order to develop your gifts so you can serve Christ. Humility says, I got the raw end of the deal in a church, but that's okay because what happens to me is not the main thing. So keeping harmony and peace in the church, it's actually more important in any of our feelings in the church, isn't it? Humility says, instead of looking at these things and asking what's in it for me and what will I get out of it? We can ask, what are the needs of others in the church? What can I do to help someone else in Christ? It is the love of Christ in us that leads men to become servants, not just of Christ, but of the whole family of God. It's to serve even when it's not convenient. It's to serve other people even when we do not like them. It's to do things we may not even like to do. So lead with love, lead with encouragement, and lead with compassion. Here's another man from history you should know, Chiyun Sagahari. As a boy, Sagahari, dreamed at one point in time this guy is a hero you guys should absolutely look him up read his story but he's an amazing guy he, he dreamed of becoming Japan's ambassador to Russia by the time the 1930s came around he was an ambassador to Lithuania just a step away from fulfilling his dream One morning he woke up and there was a huge crowd gathered outside of his home and he didn't know what was going on. He really didn't. And Sagahari, he learned that the people who had gathered outside were Jews who had fled there from Poland and they were looking for his help. They were looking for Japanese visas that would permit them to escape the Gestapo. Three times, Sagahari, he wired Tokyo for permission to give the visas. And three times, Tokyo said, no, not going to happen. Sagahari was a Christian, and he knew that if he didn't give out these visas, it would be the end of his career with the Japanese government. He would never reach his own dream of moving up in the Japanese government, but he had to choose. He had to make a decision between his dreams and the lives of these people. So Sagahara, he chose to disobey the government. And for the next 28 days, you know what this guy did? He wrote visas by hand. He barely ate. He barely slept. He just sat there writing these visas out one after another, after another, after another. Well, when people got word of this, he was recalled back to Berlin, but he was departing and riding on the train, still writing out these visas by hand and shoving them as he could through the train window into the hands of the refugees that were running alongside just to get a a visa. His work and his choice to sacrifice his own hopes and his own dreams for the lives of others meant that he was able to save, most people say, over 6,000 lives. Once back in Japan, Sagahara spent his remaining days not fulfilling his own dreams, but he sold light bulbs for the rest of his life, never reaching his dreams because he chose to make a difference. And when his story was finally told, his son was asked, how did your father feel in his later days about his choice? And the answer was this. My father's life was fulfilled when God looked for him to do the right thing. He was there to do it. Sagaharo, he was a hero in my book. I'll take men like that any day. Motivated by God's love because he put others before himself. And these are the type of people that we absolutely need here. Let me close with just a few thoughts. We live in a broken world. We all see that. We live in a world where people have some real, real Honest problems. And sometimes people are difficult to live with. Sometimes people are difficult to get along with. I pastor for a living. I got it. I understand. I see that every day. But you know what God is calling us to do? Love them, anyways. If you're kind to others, you may be accused of having selfish motives. Just be kind, anyways. Along the road of life, you're going to have people that you thought were your friends and they're going to come along and they're going to stab you in the back. And that hurts. I've been there many times. And you're going to meet some people who just don't like you. That happens too. Just continue to love them anyways. You see, the good things you do today, no matter what you do, you can go home today and have the most awesome day serving the Lord. The good things you do today, it will be forgotten tomorrow. It will be but still do the good things. Anyway, being honest is going to leave you open to critics. It will, but just be honest. Anyways, people need help, but if you try to help some people, they're going to end up attacking you. Help them anyway, because at the end of it all, listen and hear me on this. It was never between you and them. It was between you and God. See, one mind means we walk in the humility and love of our Savior, looking to serve, looking to love for the glory of our God. Amen. Return
0: to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687.